Uh, my turn as well. Bonsoir. Good evening to everybody. And thank you for coming to LSE. You know what the title is. You'll see somewhere on here a little sign saying hashtag LSE France for anybody who is uh, motivated to, to Twitterize about it. And we're going to discuss the French Revolution one year on. I think we're referring this to what happened last May, which was a, a little election upset in the, in the French system. I'm therefore delighted to have two extremely eminent and well-qualified speakers to talk about this. On my left, Jean Pisani-Ferry is a professor at Sciences Po. He's a professor at the Hertie School of Governance, and he holds the Tommaso Padua Schiopa chair at the European University Institute. Any other chairs? It seems to be but he has a long history of working on European and French issues, dating back to those of us who remember it, something called One Market, One Money, the, the book that gave rise to the euro. He's also been the director of the, the French Council of Economic Advisers and of France Stratégie, which was the successor, successor to the Commissaire General Duplon, which was once run by Jean Monnet. And I remember when Jean acquired that job, I sent a message to him saying, congratulations, how does it feel to be in the shoes of Jean Monnet? And he answered in one line, small feet. <laughs> On my right, we have Christine O'Krent, who I think anybody would recognize as the most distinguished journalist of her generation. She has been on both sides of the Atlantic with CB, CBS and 60 Minutes and NBC, as well as being the, the anchor of Antenne News in France, amongst many other jobs, one of the founders of France 24, etc., etc. You cannot get a more distinguished journalist than Christine. Now, you may wonder why we've got two French people talking about France. Well, the answer is they're not. Christine is, in fact, Belgian, and I've checked... Jean's antecedents, and the Maltese. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> and you should also be aware that uh, in Jean's family, they have uh, the Chateau de Target and the Sommer Champigny, an excellent winery for those of us who like the Loire wines. All kinds of unexpected things. Now, the way we're going to conduct the evening is that Jean will speak first and give a, 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 an indication of some of the things that have been happening in France. Christine will then follow up and then I've given her the task of cross-examining Jean. So I'll, I'll sit back a bit and let, let that cross-examination take place. And then we'll move on to the Q&A. So Jean, the parole est à toi. We, we stay here? Or yes, or you can let the lectures no, no, because they, wish. No, no, that's fine to, be, to, to remain here. So thank, thank, you, thank you so much for you know, the bio, the introduction. Um, but... Um, uh, also, I'm, I'm extremely happy to have this, uh, this opportunity uh, here to, to, you know, reflect. I was, you were kind enough not to say it, but I, I have to disclose I was part of the Macron campaign. Uh, but I'm not part of the team now, so I'm free to discuss, and I'm not here, obviously, to sort of song, uh, sing the, the gospel. I'm, I'm here more to, to reflect, uh, you know, on the, the lessons one year on, and uh, the questions that uh, this uh, quite unusual experience uh, raises. Um, the, the title is a bit of an overstatement. 
for sure. Uh, but uh, your fault. But the, the shock was nevertheless major. I mean, the political shock uh, after uh, the very dramatic uh, election um, and uh, after so many years in which the sort of impression, conventional wisdom, was that parties are here to stay, that it's a very stable system, uh, suddenly the system, uh, there was an upheaval politically of the, of the system and uh, an agenda that uh, nobody really expected to be, uh, to be put forward and, and implemented. Uh, so perhaps it's good to start by going back to uh, where we were one year ago and then to assess where we are now. Uh, but before that, I don't resist asking how many of you are, are French? Well, perhaps not a majority. Okay. <laughs> good. Um, today's contrast between France and Italy is very strong. Uh, so we have uh, we have a French uh, you know president uh, who is a reformist, a pro-European, uh, with a very strong majority, and uh, governs let's say from the centre. I'm going to go back to that. And in Italy, uh, we have two anti-system parties that are about to govern together, and with many questions about uh, the consequences of this appeal. Uh, we shouldn't overestimate the difference in the result of the election between those two countries. Um, in the first round, the anti-system party got 48% of the vote in France. In the Italian election, they got 55 So it's not that big as a, a difference. And uh, it's because of the particular electoral system uh, and because of the particular circumstances that eliminated uh, one of the candidates from the one that was expected to, to win from the, from the right, um, that the uh, French election delivered that result. Now, um, in the second round, uh, nearly 11 million uh, French citizens voted uh, for, for someone who was not only unfit to govern, but did not even pretend to be fit to govern. Um, and we were lucky that uh, the, the candidate of this camp was a very bad champion, and that was uh, seen. But um, this, I'm not saying Macron's election was by accident, but there were a series of very particular uh, circumstances that led to it. So there were, in, in fact, sort of two earthquakes. The first one was uh, this earthquake that resulted from this immense frustration that the electorate expressed on the occasion of this uh, election. Um, frustration with the political system as it is, and if you count Macron, you know, three-fourths of the voters uh, of the votes went to, to parties uh, that were not represented in Parliament, which is extraordinary. So uh, frustration with the way the country was run, frustration with the political system, frustration with the, with the, with the stalemate, and you know, a lot of it uh, going to anti-system parties. Uh, and the second earthquake was this very special outcome. But um, 
it can be forgotten. I want to emphasize that because it can be forgotten that you know this was the, the mood that was expressed in the election. The mood in the election was not that you know suddenly all the French voters were converted to the sort of uh, policy proposal that was uh, put forward by Macron. Now, what did he uh, stand for? Um, I think, uh, I mean, with some simplification, I can, um, I can summarize what he uh, stood for in uh, uh, several points, I mean, three main points. The first is a sort of modernization agenda. Modernization agenda, uh, um, which was very much in the order in, 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 in France, uh, with a long list of uh, delayed, half-backed, cautious, step-by-step reforms that did not deliver much. If you want to sort of get a shortcut of it, um, we had, over the last 15 years, uh, so until uh, the election, until 17, we had one reform of the uh, labor code per quarter. Uh, so it's extraordinary. I mean, on, on average, each quarter there was a, a, a new law that changed something in the in the labor code, um, with very little overall effect. So this was characteristic of this uh, way of you know doing reform bit by bit. We also had. Uh, over the last 20 years, we had uh, four pension reforms. We had uh, three reforms of professional training. Um, so a lot of reform fatigue, and at the same time, very little reform delivery. So uh, Macron went for, advocated, uh, much, a much bolder approach um, and put forward a modernization agenda that is not particularly original. That's, uh, you know, uh, about um, about uh, flexibility, about uh, efficiency, um, about um, <clears throat> taxation. You could well say that this is part of the traditional structural reform agenda that uh, was put forward in many countries, you know, sort of part of the international consensus. So that was what I would call the modernization agenda. But he had a second agenda. Um, that I would call the uh, sort of empowerment agenda. And this one was much more specific, much more uh, uh, original, much, uh, much bolder. And it was about uh, breaking with the view that problems uh, within French society could be addressed mainly by redistribution. Uh, redistribution through the, the taxation and spending system, and putting much more uh, emphasis on uh, social mobility uh, and, and um, the building of uh, capacities, on, uh, on support for uh, individual uh, <coughs> development. Um, so something that's uh, you know, draws in a different philosophy. It's not the philosophy of structural reform per se. It's a philosophy of, of, of social change, of empowerment, that uh, is rooted more in, uh, if you wish, in the sort of uh, approach of uh, Matthias Sen and uh, this kind of, uh, of, of philosophy. Uh, and it's, 
responded to a, a situation where um, you, know, you have a very redistributive state, so the, the exposed inequality is low, especially you know, compared to this country, it's certainly lower. Uh, Ex-ante inequality um, is, uh, remains uh, relatively high. Social mobility is limited, uh, and perceived social mobility is very low. So the perception, uh, widespread perception, there is a very interesting article by uh, um, Alberto Alesina and uh, Stephanie Stancheva about perceived mobility and actual mobility in various countries. And what you find in this article is that in France, social mobility is not necessarily much lower, but perceived mobility uh, by people is much lower. So the perception that the rules of the game are not fair is very strong uh, in, in, in the country. Um, and this is one particular approach, but you know, looking at various type of, uh, of, of surveys, of uh, analysis, you always come to this conclusion that the perception was that, um, or is still, that uh, the rules of the game are, are, are not fair, they are biased. Uh, you don't have a chance. And so uh, to unlock that, to put much more emphasis on uh, equality of opportunity, on supporting uh, mobility for people, um, on uh, ensuring the rules are the same for, for all, and also on building protections for the digital age, so uh, broadening the scope of the traditional uh, social protection system that was built on a professional basis in France. It's not like here. I mean, it's not a beverage system at core. It's a system at core, which is, was more of the Bismarckian tradition, uh, built on, on, prof on a professional basis. So uh, to, to generalize uh, social protection for the digital age so that uh, you could support people uh, be them, uh, you know, uh, wage earners or uh, independent workers uh, <coughs> throughout their change in their, in their situation. Uh, so to, to create a safety net that's much more adapted in a, to, to a different set of uh, economic uh, and social institutions. So that was the second, uh, which was very much about the social contract. Uh, so more, you know, not part of this standard uh, international agenda, or uh, not, not really, I mean, something more politically significant, uh, and that, um, you know, was a significant part of, of his, um, of his uh, proposition. And the third part was the, the European uh, agenda. Um, there uh, is or oh, there was a long-standing tradition in France of not uh, uh, speaking about Europe uh, in electoral campaigns because uh, Europe was divisive within each camp, um, especially after the, the referendum in 2005 about the European Constitution, but it started before. It started even at the time of the Maastricht uh, Treaty uh, and the referendum on, on monetary union. Um, divisive uh, socially, divisive in terms of uh, education, very much along the same line as uh, you know, those observed here in the referendum on, on Brexit. But politically very divisive, uh, with each camp 
uh, having um, a wing that's pro-European and a wing that's uh, much more Eurosceptic. And so the easy way uh, out for uh, politicians was not to speak about Europe in the national campaigns, to speak about it in the European election campaigns in relatively uh, vague terms and uh, where that were generally uh, recipes for, for disappointment. And Macron broke with that. And he broke with that extremely visibly. In each of his uh, meetings, there were European flags, and so it was extremely visible, probably the most visible part of his campaign that he stood for, for Europe. Uh, with an agenda that was not very specific, also because in a general election it's hard to be very specific about the intricacies of, uh, of European uh, negotiations. But that was about Eurozone reforms, that was about uh, uh, reforms that would ensure that Eurozone brings more <coughs> stability and more, more prosperity. Um, that was about Europe. Uh, being a facilitator for national reforms, national transformation, and that was uh, about Europe as a response to, to global change. And so, uh, again, that was uh, an original specific part of his, uh, of his proposal. Now, if we take stock, <coughs> where are we? Uh, on the modernization agenda, much has been uh, done. Uh, I mean, it's not... It's not done, but there was a strong start. Um, on taxation, uh, essentially the reforms of wealth and income and capital income taxation have been uh, legislated. The uh, labor market reforms, uh, part of them have been passed, have passed in Parliament, part of them are, are in discussion in Parliament uh, uh, right now. Um, so that includes the predictability of layoff costs, that includes the decentralization of, of bargaining, that includes the conditionality of uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, the sectoral reforms, I mean, most uh, visibly the railway sector reform, which is underway and which, uh, you know, um, has uh, been resisted uh, with uh, strikes that have been going on since, uh, when was it, March, huh? end of March, and when it started. Um, not uh, not permanent strike, but you know, sort of every every sort of uh, new type of strike, every uh, every three day, two days of strike, uh, with quite a lot of disruption in the traffic, uh, but also public audiovisual. I mean, you know, a number of sector reforms, um, and also uh, reform of access to university, uh, which is also something that uh, elicits some some reaction. So the reform drive is, is, is strong. There are more to come. Um, there are two uh, big uh, reforms uh, on the agenda, one uh, which is about the public sector. Uh, public sector meaning about uh, both the level of public spending and the way the public sector is run. I mean, the, the level of public spending is, um, is expect exceptionally high in France, in part for good reason, in part for, for bad reason. We can go back to that. Uh, and uh, pensions, um, this is uh, more actually part of this uh, empowerment agenda because it's not about uh, reducing the cost of pensions, it's m about fundamentally creating a universal pension system that uh, would apply the same rules to everyone so that would favor mobility as well as uh, bringing uh, fairness. Um, he has a mandate for reform, uh, to reform. Um, 
the the voters uh, are you know considered he has a legitimacy uh, to, to reform because he was very explicit about the reform uh, agenda in the electoral campaign. So there was a recent opinion poll um, that uh, showed that you know, 70% of voters think that he, he does what he promised uh, during the campaign, and that gives a lot of legitimacy. And this is relatively new because we had very often presidents who were elected on a certain platform and then um, operated a U-turn soon after having been elected. And, you know, we're not alone this way in in Europe, but uh, that does not convey legitimacy and that creates a lot of political frustration. Um, People are a bit shocked by the pace of reform. Uh, Half of of them consider the reform are going too too fast, Uh, but again, it's not much of a surprise. And uh, they're also shocked by the sort of vertical character of uh, the reform. I mean, there is not there is room for negotiation on certain reforms, with uh, with the new unions, with social partners, but on other reforms, they just go through, uh, expedited through through parliament. Not much of a parliamentary discussion. Uh, so very much driven from from the top. So. On the whole, I would say the modernization agenda is being delivered, and this is a surprise for many in Europe because they expected that you know, uh, France would again disappoint, that the reforms would not be implemented. Um, and in fact, uh, there is delivery. Now, what on the empowerment agenda? Um, so here, the, the, the picture is more mixed. Uh, there was a, a start, a significant start, with some measures on primary education and uh, doubling the number of, of teachers per pupil in, uh, in uh, disfavored neighborhoods uh, where there is a strong concentration of minorities at the, in the elementary classes. Um, there is uh, under discussion in, in Parliament uh, a bold reform, a very bold reform of professional training and uh, apprenticeship. Uh, by bold, I mean that you know it's a, it's a really systemic reform. Uh, we had a, a system of professional training that uh, is costly, uh, that is, was extremely opaque, uh, fairly unfair, because uh, <coughs> mostly it's people already with a with an education that uh, benefited from it, and um, that in spite of various attempts to sort of put more the focus on the individuals rather on the, than on the companies, uh, there was really no uh, instrument uh, available for, for people, for employees, uh, to be able to take charge of their own uh, you know, building and the development of their own uh, skills and, and human capital. So. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the empowerment agenda. It's significantly, you know, to give, for example, I mean, the, each and every uh, employee each year will receive on an account uh, the same amount of money, 500 euros, um, on an account that's usable for, for training and retraining. And the amount uh, will not be proportional to, to wage. It will be... Uh, the same for everyone, and even it can be topped up for people without uh, strong uh, initial training. 
and so that it gives uh, the means uh, to to train and, and, and retrain, and so uh, you know to overcome the fact that you, you didn't have a strong initial education, um, and that will go with uh, a streamlining of the uh, the supply of uh, professional training, so that there is much more transparency on um, the outcome uh, of the various uh, courses that are offered and uh, the degree to which they give access to uh, labor market uh, uh, improvement of the labor market. So, so it's, uh, it's, it's more than significant. Now, that's a, the sort of positive uh, part. Uh, the less um, positive is that uh, on the generalization of unemployment insurance, uh, for budgetary reason, um, it has been uh, turned down. So it's a, it's a, you know, relatively underwhelming reform. The idea, for example, was to give access to unemployment insurance to people who would resign, uh, to give access to unemployment insurance to people working on platforms, uh, and in fact, uh, this is nominally the case. This will be nominally the case, but with significant conditions, restrictions, that will uh, you know, uh, result in, in the outcome being less than what was initially envisaged. Um, more is to come, as I said, on, on pension, and pension is a big, uh, a big question, uh, the big, uh, big challenge, uh, because uh, it has been <coughs> traditionally the most controversial of the reforms and those opposed most uh, vividly by uh, by unions. I mean, you know, if, if there's something, there are two things uh, French politicians are afraid of. One is uh, railway, uh, railway reform because it's a highly unionized uh, sector, and the other pension reform because it can be politically extremely and socially extremely costly. Um, and um, there is also um, the uh, um, um, issue of short-term contracts. Uh, in principle, and the law, and the draft law for the time being is uh, something that's relatively <laughs> ambitious, but there is uh, the provision that would possibly introduce um, uh, what is called uh, in the U.S. an experience rating system so that would uh, essentially uh, make companies pay for uh, the fact that their former employees uh, end up uh, being unemployed um, and so have a, a sort of incentive system to uh, let company um, put more focus on uh, and, you know, either keeping people or uh, helping them to to find a job or, or you know, uh, giving them capabilities that they are, uh, make them able to find uh, jobs. Um, but all that has not really changed the conversation uh, on these issues of uh, you know, fairness, uh, mobility, something that's regarded with... Uh, with a lot of uh, caution of uh, doubt uh, by, by citizens. Um, an indication of that is that uh, in opinion polls, again, about uh, 39% of people consider that the country will be better in four years when the term uh, ends. Um, and that's a majority, that's a relative majority, so 39 against 29. But 43% consider that they themselves will be in a worse situation 
against uh, against 17. So so the the perception is still that you know the country is is perhaps uh, doing better and the, the the country will be doing better, but I myself am not going to benefit. Um, and uh, the uh, distribution issues have been very much uh, prominent in the debate, and they've been dominated by the uh, debate over taxation. Um, taxation, uh, as I said, uh, taxation agenda was uh, essentially focused on um, reducing taxes on, on capital income and on wealth. There, there were, I mean, I, I think that from an efficiency point of view, this was, uh, this was necessary. Uh, tax on wealth had very little redistributive properties. It was uh, highly uh, concentrated, but with um, uh, tax base that was relatively uh, narrow, uh, and with lots of holes, lots of lots of loopholes. Um, so that you know, if you look at uh, the um, wealth of the uh, 100 uh, richest French individuals, um, it's 300 billion. Uh, they were paying together 70 million uh, of uh, tax on wealth. So that's about one uh, six hundredth the, what uh, they would have paid had they paid the, the nominal tax rate on wealth. Uh, not saying that it was tax evasion, uh, there, was, there were lots of legal ways, and I mean, some of them have their wealth outside uh, the country. But it's just an indication of the fact that this redistributive um, character of this uh, tax on wealth is, is, is very limited. Uh, so, so this uh, uh, issue of taxation, that was very much perceived as being a gift to the rich. And he, uh, uh, Macron very quickly earned the name of the president of the rich. Um, and some of the measures that were supposed to balance that um, had to be or were postponed. Uh, especially there was uh, one, another of the tax proposals, which was to uh, increase a tax on uh, income in general, a proportional tax on income, and use the receipt to uh, lower uh, social contribution of, of labor, so that to tax uh, general income more and labor less, which meant essentially transfer from pensioners to wage earners. Uh, I mean, you can discuss whether it was a good policy, but it was a very clear choice to say pensioners went on retirement <coughs> with relatively generous pensions compared to the generation that will follow because pension reform were delayed. Um, and uh, so taxing the pensions to redistribute to wage earners was a way to sort of favor labor and activity. Now, what happened is that for budgetary reasons, or actually excessive caution in the budgetary planning, uh, they were disconnected. So the taxes on uh, pen, uh, pension was introduced and the, was front-loaded, and the tax, uh, the, the cut on social uh, security contribution is being backloaded, which means that the measure has become totally unreadable. Uh, it's perceived as just something against the pensioners and not at all as something that, you know, redistributes from the pensioners to the, to the wage earners. Uh, so the overall uh, perception is that the mobility, this 
ambitious uh, empowerment agenda is not something that's widely perceived or that's widely credible, where the distributional agenda through uh, the reform of taxation is widely perceived as being unfair. What about Europe? Uh, I'm a bit long, sorry. Um, the European agenda uh, has uh, been facing stumbling blocks much more than expected. The idea initially was that uh, Macron got elected in, uh, in May. There were German elections in September, that soon after the German election, perhaps two months or three months, there would be a coalition that negotiation would start with the German uh, government uh, on uh, reforms of the Eurozone, and that all that could be implemented relatively quickly, uh, also perhaps uh, also agreed upon before the Italian election. In the event, because there was a first attempt to a German coalition uh, that failed, and then a second uh, German coalition with a different party, with the SPD, um, uh, that resulted in the formation of a government not very long ago, and because this uh, government is still in the process of deciding what he wants to uh, do on, uh, on Europe, uh, discussions have not really uh, gone uh, very far. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, what we are seeing is that we now have a new uh, government being formed in Italy, and in it and a discussion on Europe that's going to be very much dominated by what's happening in Italy and what are the consequences of it. Um, French-German discussions are not uh, easy. Um, that's traditional. Uh, the French agenda, the Macron's agenda, was on the Eurozone very much about, uh, about stabilization, about uh, you know, providing uh, buffers through creation of the Eurozone budget uh, through the means so that uh, the Eurozone could better absorb shocks. Um, um, the uh, German view is very reluctant to the notion of stabilization. Essentially, the, the Germans do not see stabilization as, uh, as a problem. I mean, they consider that shocks are essentially uh, man-made. They are not uh, random. They don't, don't come from the blue. Uh, so that they're skeptical about the budget and they see the budget, the budget as a way to essentially transfer money to s always to the same. So essentially it's, uh, it's perceived as, you know, asking the German taxpayer to pay for the others. So it's a difficult discussion and it's a, a discussion that uh, was delayed um, and that uh, now is, uh, you know, becoming more difficult also for because of the overall condition in, in, in Europe. Um, it's, um, the stakes are high. Uh, the stakes are high because uh, this uh, European uh, agenda was so prominent, so visible in Macron's uh, proposition. So if he comes back and tells the French voters, look, I've tried and I have uh, failed to deliver, that's going to be a, a difficult um, thing to, you know, to tell the voters who, who saw this consistency between the domestic dimension and the European dimension as something that was a really a strong part of, uh, of his the balance. Of <coughs> Let me end with, um, with the challenges. Um, I would say the first challenge is really the challenge of fairness, as I, as I indicated. Um, the perception now 
is that um, this government is not delivering uh, enough uh, fairness. Uh, eight out of ten voters think that um, the uh, Macron uh, agenda is aggravating uh, social inequality. Um, they think that uh, the same proportion think that uh, it benefits uh, those who are already well off. Um, and uh, they also think actually that uh, his policy uh, is benefiting the inhabitants of large cities. So there is also a regional uh, divide, a geographical divide. Uh, and for all these reasons, um, um, this may, first of all, weaken the government politically. It's not a matter of, you know, it's very much coached in terms of left and right. To me, it's not a matter of left and right. It's a matter of, of fairness. You can, you can have different views on, you know, whether uh, he's uh, uh, where he is in, on, the, on the political spectrum. And I'm going to go back to that. But, uh, but the fairness, the perception of, of the fairness in the reform agenda is essential. I think uh, uh, the, the current perception uh, is more negative um, than uh, I think uh, it's dangerously negative for a government. Um, the second uh, challenge is the challenge of uh, fostering uh, change. I think that uh, the modernization agenda can be delivered essentially through legislation. You know, it's about a sort of traditional agenda of reforms. Now, the, the empowerment agenda requires more. It requires a sort of more fundamental change uh, in a society, in a way people see the rule of the game, in the way they see their chances uh, in a society, um, in the way they see that uh, they, the state is facilitating their own uh, personal development, um, and it requires also that um, uh, institutions, uh, you know, the civil society, uh, becomes part of this uh, transformation. Uh, it's like, just to take an example, I mean, if you want a, a society to focus more on building human capital and education on, you know, on, on something that uh, requires a personal investment, it's not just about changing the, 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 the legislation. It's about a different attitude. If you want to create, if you're creating an instrument for people to uh, develop their own uh, uh, skill acquisition, it's about the instrument, but it's about the use of this instrument, and that requires that, that you know, people become change of attitude, yes. Uh, and, um, and here there is a debate about uh, what can trigger this kind of change, and there is a debate about the role of the, of the state, uh, about uh, what comes from the top, <laughs> what comes from legislation, and what can come from the social institutions. So the social institutions that can be social partners, that can be unions, that can be various type of civil society organization. Um, but uh, there is here a question about you know, what, what the driver of change. Uh, the focus has been extremely on implementing legislation on legislating and implementing legislation, and much less so far on this type of approach. Um, and the third, uh, I would say, um, is the, the question, uh, let me end on that, is the question of political identity. So I did not, you know, I, I spoke of policy, not of, of politics mostly. Um, the question uh, is really, is it uh, what, what is the significance of his uh, proposal? And there, there are various interpretations. 
uh, German politicians once told me, um, I understand this is a grand coalition French style, which I don't think it is. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, there are at least two different interpretations. One is sort of the, the centrist um, a centrist coalition or a triumph of the, of the center, um, which is uh, one way of seeing things, that the you know, French political system is polarized, so traditionally the center did not exist, uh, that somehow he succeeded in creating the center, and that it's a, that's a way things are going to go. And the other one is more than um, that the categories of left and right uh, without disappearing are being... Uh, you know, superseded in a way by uh, differences having to do with uh, with openness, with uh, identity, with new issues that uh, are uh, significant in all our societies, and so that's about the redefinition of the uh, of the political uh, spectrum, which is obviously uh, more uh, ambitious. At this stage, um, this is still very uncertain. Uh, the 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 way the voters see when they asked uh, his positioning that he's moved to the right. Uh, the answer is very clear. 70% of the voters consider that he's right-wing, which was not at all the case uh, at the time of the election where he was perceived as being centrist. So he's perceived having moved to the right, and that has to do with uh, this issue of, uh, of fairness and, uh, and redistribution. Uh, now, if this is the agenda, this is, you know, if, this is, if this is a perception and this is a political identity, this is going to color a number of things and have a deep implication on what he can achieve and what he cannot achieve. But uh, at this stage, this is where we are. So, conclusion, um, perhaps I sort of painted uh, glass half empty. Um, I think, you know, you have to start from the recognition that it was an extremely, or it is an extremely uh, ambitious political endeavor, um, that uh, a year uh, in, a, in a reform process is a relatively uh, limited time span, so a lot can, can happen, a lot still remain uh, relatively uh, uncertain. Um, the big question, and I started with that, I want to end on it, uh, is really that the degree of anger, the degree of frustration, the degree of fear there is in the French society um, remains extremely, extremely high, even though people perceive the situation has improved, also for reasons that have to do with the cycle. Um, but uh, this, uh, this anger, this frustration, is really uh, there, and at the end of the day, what will determine the fate of this, uh, of this attempt, of this endeavor, is whether people perceive that there is an answer to their, their fear uh, and their, their anger, um, and that remains really still very much to be seen. Thank you. Now that everyone is in the room, I can also reveal that Christine did as the honor of being on the advisory board of the Darendorf Forum, which is one of the co-sponsors of this evening's event, along with the European Institute. Christine, over to you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. I, I would, of course, not at all uh, try and, and contest uh, Jean's very complete and precise analysis. Maybe w what uh, I would like to uh, stress upon <clears throat> is that 
Emmanuel Macron, uh, for the past year, has uh, discovered that he's actually dealing with very difficult people, and that's the French. And the French love change. They always think of themselves as being revolutionaries. They love change as long as it doesn't affect them directly. It's also uh, very interesting that uh, Emmanuel Macron did not, being no politician, which was very much, uh, I believe, his main asset in uh, uh, representing something else uh, than uh, the old and even young generation of French politicians. When you look at the younger generation of French politicians, be they on the right like Vauquier or on the left like uh, the guy who runs the Socialist Party, I'm sorry, uh, Faux. <laughs> I mean, these people uh, are extremely old. <clears throat> they really belong to that old world which Macron managed to push away for a while. And I think that's the attractiveness uh, that the French, even those who didn't necessarily vote for him, or people who didn't vote at all, because Jean uh, pointed at the percentage of those who voted against, but that tends to be in our democracies um, more and more the case, but uh, many people didn't even bother to vote because they wouldn't really go for any of uh, these people representing traditional parties. So Macron did not know France. He did not know the French. Uh, he was not that interested either. Uh, he has had a, an extremely um, unique <clears throat> personal, uh, cultural, intellectual, sociological uh, parcours, but not at all uh, a political one. And so I think, to his credit, <clears throat> he has managed to impress the French, even those who take to the streets. Uh, that's not all of them. That's not at all all of them. <laughs> and that's another dimension. Uh, the French do not like change when it affects them. The French have a very specific relationship to the state with a capital S. And that applies even uh, to, you know, to people who have a higher income and not only people uh, who feel that their trade unions, particularly in the civil service, uh, have to protect them from privatization. There's a whole fantasy, um, the, a whole vocabulary, which has always invaded the French political speech, and which is very far away from the facts uh, and the actual situation, economic and social, uh, of the country. And, and what you hear now is indeed in the streets with a rather low number <coughs> of people demonstrating, with a rather low number of people being on strike, uh, even at the SNCF, but it relates to the symbols that the French are extremely attached to. And you find <clears throat> these extraordinary um, polls where uh, a majority of people say, oh, yes, we have to reform the railways. The government is right to reform the railways. 
And then another poll, they say, oh, but the cheminot status has to be protected. And that has to do with a sort of symbolism uh, which is, goes very strong in our political uh, culture. And it applies to the cheminot and it applies to ESF, l'impôt sur la fortune, which, as Jean pointed out, was of very uh, marginal uh, financial impact, but which in, <clears throat> in the sort of French psyche uh, does symbolize that you have the very rich and then you have all of us. And that is something that uh, Macron has there to tackle up front. Uh, and that, that, I think, is very much uh, to his credit. And I think that uh, he still has four more years to go. As you know, our system is not really a parliamentary system. It's more of a presidential one. But our parliament is in a very unique situation, and that is that a brand new political party, which, by the way, finds it very difficult to find its own uh, mode of functioning, but a brand new political party, Macron's political party, is indeed dominating parliament. So whatever, you know, the French, they love to pass laws. No. I think we are the world champion of sort of piling up laws which are not necessarily implemented. Uh, but I think this particular majority is trying not to pass as many laws as, as before, so maybe there's a chance that some of them will be implemented. But it's very unique that you have this overwhelming majority that actually supports the government whatever, whichever way the government goes. And that again, uh, we have uh, European elections next year. European elections, as Jean pointed out, traditionally has split uh, the, cons the, the, the French conservatives and the French left. Uh, it's only the center or whatever is left of it uh, that has always been pro-European. But these uh, elections are likely uh, to stress again this very unique uh, political landscape uh, assuming the French bother to, to go and vote. So another four years to go, uh, no opposition to speak of except uh, the extreme left. Uh, Mélenchon has managed to totally uh, uh, outcast the, the, the conservatives who are nowhere to be heard and who have no alternative proposals. It's, uh, most of the times they actually vote in parliament for some of the government's reforms. So that again is very unique. And the prime minister, as you know, uh, used to be uh, Alain Juppé's wonder boy. So it's a, it's a totally new political landscape uh, in, in that sense. And I think what it really boils down to, uh, and it's uh, a phenomenon which our democracies are more and more prone to suffer from, is the, the sociological split. It's not so much between left and right. It's between what I believe uh, David Goodhart called uh, people who belong somewhere and people who belong everywhere. And that, I think, is, is that the correct uh, phrase? Somewhere. I think it is. Somewhere people and anywhere. Somewhere people and, and 
uh, <coughs> and I think that this idea that Macron uh, is imposing upon the French uh, a new liberal order, uh, as you know, liberal in the French political vocabulary is, is a very nasty and dangerous word because uh, liberalism uh, has always led to other interpretations than it has in other countries, starting, of course, with this one. But this, so Macron is labeled as a neoliberal, which is supposed to sound even worse than just a liberal. But again, what strikes me is that for all the shortcomings of the empowerment agenda, uh, there's no one else to come up with uh, any proposals to actually make up for what is Macron's main uh, problem, which is his lack of empathy, uh, obviously, for uh, those people who still believe that the state is the ultimate uh, protection and those who still believe that uh, their trade unions, however weak they are, you know, overall, it's about 7% of the French labor force that is actually unionized, which is a very bad sign, by the way. But, and I think that the danger there is that Macron is tempted to have this very vertical system that Jean was talking about. And as there is no uh, political opposition to speak of coming up with alternative proposals, it's Macron and the street, and the street with Mélenchon's voice. And that's not good, because they, they, there is the need for intermediaries. Uh, there is the need for having uh, not a direct confrontation all the time between Jupiter, as he's now called, on the top, and uh, Monsieur Martinez uh, of the CGT, and, uh, and those people uh, in the streets. The last demonstration in Paris actually gathered less uh, people than it did two or three weeks ago. So we'll see what happens on Saturday, where for the first time, and it's more of a sign of weakness than anything else, the CGT, which used to be the Communist Union, uh, will be uh, demonstrating together with Mélenchon. So the CGT is politicizing uh, its uh, action uh, for the first time. Uh, since uh, many, many years. So I think that um, it would be much more interesting to have our friends in the audience actually question uh, Jean on uh, what he explained about uh, Macron's achievement. But I would just like to conclude on this notion that uh, Macron had an extraordinary uh, and unique stroke of luck when he got elected one year ago. And <clears throat> luck is indeed a huge political asset. You know what Napoleon said to his generals? He said, I don't want a general who's a great uh, strategist or technician. I want a lucky general. <laughs> and as most French intellectuals now in our media spend a lot of time trying to ponder whether Macron is more Bonaparte or more Napoleon, you, you have a lot of very interesting comments on this very uh, specific French uh, question. Uh, I think, again, the idea for 
to watch uh, for the next four years is whether Macron will have that luck. And there are two problems. He's running out of luck with Europe, and he stressed very much uh, from the very start that his domestic agenda is very much linked to his European agenda. Germany and now Italy, not to mention uh, Hungary's Orban and all the eastern uh, part of the EU. And the other issue is the economic cycle. Is it or, or not, but that I revert back to Jean, are we coming out of what was actually a positive cycle? Now we see that unemployment is rising again, not that much, but still, 0.2. And overall, uh, France caught up much too late with uh, the positive cycle that had helped other uh, EU countries. If indeed now the economic cycle is slowing down, that will not help uh, Macron's agenda. Well, while the members of the audience think about their questions, let me ask, ask one quick question to both of you simultaneously. We're lucky to get you here because we were worried about the SNCF strikes. That's why I flew Air France this morning and I was one hour late everywhere. But my, my, my quick question, I, I look for a one or two sentence answer, is is Macron winning the battle against the resistance to his economic reforms, Christine? I think he's winning the railway battle, uh, that's for sure. Uh, I think uh, the tax battle, that's another issue, especially as our tax system uh, is changing completely, uh, Jean, uh, next year, um, you know, with the retenue à la source. <clears throat> so I think that will be quite a shock. But I think overall, yes, I believe Macron is winning what he has undertaken. Jean, do you concur? I concur on the, on the railways. Um, I think the, big, the much bigger issue is public sector overall. Um, the, uh, and I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure that the, uh, the result of the battle on the railways uh, is a good stepping stone for what is to come um, because it has dragged on. Uh, so the, uh, probably the idea initially was to sort of have a quick victory and to build on it to move to the next step. Uh, the stakes are much higher in the public sector in general. Uh, problems in the public sector are um, that we have a very we, – we have a public sector that's organized in the way it was organized in the mid-20th uh, century. It hasn't I – mean, the, the structures haven't changed. So uh, the, the public managers are not sufficiently empowered. They don't uh, enjoy sufficiently a, sufficient autonomy uh, – and to uh, adapt to a variety of, of conditions. If you take the school system, you, know, you have the, the principle of the school system is equality of supply everywhere. But in fact, it's not the case. And you would need to have much more differentiation. And actually, Macron goes in this direction. But you would need to go much further to have uh, you know, managers of schools who are empowered to address some problems. 
uh, of, uh, of the school children in their particular uh, neighborhood. Uh, so that requires much more autonomy, that requires much more devolution. And that has to, means breaking with a sort of traditional approach. So I think the stakes in this are much, much higher. So yes, on the battle with the railways, yes, but you know, it has, it has lasted and the sort of the mountain ahead of us is far higher. Okay, thank you. What we'll do is we'll take questions in groups of three in classic LSE tradition. Please wait for the microphone because this is being recorded. Say who you are. I don't want to hear speeches. Help it can be more precise questions. So who was first? I think there's somebody right at the back. Uh, from the German Economic Council. Uh, there was the discussion about the European election next year, and you clearly see a battle forming between Juncker and Macron. And it seems Macron does not like Barnier. It seems like Juncker wants to place Barnier, and there was the whole little Zedelmeier coup. How do you see that playing out if Macron doesn't align himself in the European Parliament and hence Juncker is squeezing him out of the Spitzenkandidaten discussion? How do you think is that going to play out? Is he going to play the same coup he did in France, which seems... What's your view on that? Okay, thank you. Um, over here first. And then over here. Hi, um, Joseph from LSA Ideas. Um, you said Macron's voters see him as moving to the right. It reminds me of uh, Mitterrand's voters and when he became president, and I wondered what your sort of compare and contrast would be with uh, Francois Mitterrand's presidency at this point in time. And the third question here. You notice that the first three questions are all men, so I hope the woman will be encouraged to come next. Uh, Duncan Sparks from the City of London. I wonder whether the speakers could comment on what they think is the outlook for the other French political parties, most of whom emerged devastated from the last presidential and legislative elections. Do they see them renewing themselves or complete restructuring? Christine, would you like to start? Pick up any of these questions that you deem appropriate? Um, well, may maybe the last one about uh, political parties. The, as you may remember, um, about 10 months ago, everybody <coughs> and his cousin believed that François Fillon uh, would actually be elected uh, to the Élysée. The, the French right is uh, actually in, in shambles. Uh, it's a generation of... Uh, conservative politicians who have intense dislike for one another. That's not typically French, uh, from what I can read in the British press. Um, but it's, uh, there is no, the, the, the Sarkozy is still very much the sort of uh, uh, father figure uh, for one side of uh, the Conservatives, Alain Juppé for the other side. And uh, in fact, uh, Vauquier, who tries to imitate Sarkozy but doesn't quite have his flair, uh, is the least uh, popular uh, leader in the country. It's remarkable. His popularity uh, polls are, are sliding down. So that's for the Conservatives. Uh, on the left, the Socialist Party is almost defunct, dead. 
uh, and Olivier Faure, from what I read in, in uh, Liberation this morning, is, is taking lessons because uh, his friends believe that he's, he doesn't articulate uh, his ideas well enough. He's, he's a very well-meaning uh, guy who's been in politics all his life. I think he started as a parliamentary aide uh, some time ago. But the Socialist Party is really... Uh, become very, very weak. And so the, uh, you have the uh, Front National, which is about to change its name, uh, with a very weak leader, but uh, still a very, very strong electoral base. And I think it would be a huge mistake to believe that uh, the, the, the far right in France is out of the game. They have a leadership issue, the, the, the brightest uh, of the Front National tribe is, of course, another Le Pen. That's the youngest one, 28 or 29, uh, Marion Maréchal Le Pen. She's very smart. Uh, and she has just launched, I think, yesterday, a sort of university uh, to train people uh, who want to think properly and so trained a younger generation who would actually be her team when she thinks that the, the time is ripe. So she's the interesting character, I think, to watch. And then you have Mélenchon, who is by far the most talented, sort of old-style uh, tribun, a fantastic vocabulary, uh, fantastic uh, appetite uh, for the public scene, but he has, what, 10 MPs, 11 MPs? Uh, and so he, he wants the, the whole of the left to actually uh, support him as the only opposition leader, and indeed he plays that part. But in actual terms, his political weight uh, is indeed uh, very weak. And so that gets me to the point I was trying to make earlier, which is that Macron has a very strong parliamentary base with a political party, whatever its own issues, and it will be interesting to see how they perform next year in the European election. <coughs> Jean, do all, do all politicians move to the right? Uh, just a word on, on that, uh, just to compliment. Um, we have it, an electoral system uh, with a two-round system. In a two-round system, you cannot have room for five parties. I mean, it's not, that's not a stable situation. Uh, so traditionally, we had two on the right and two on the left, uh, you know, and eventually some of them merged. So you had one on the right and, uh, and one dominant on the left, uh, but it cannot continue with, with five parties. So, so the... There's going to be a, a, a redefinition. I mean, they, and I agree, Mélenchon has a strong uh, basis now on the left. Uh, and on the right, there is a competition between the Front National and the traditional conservative, and we don't know what the result of it will be. Uh, on, uh, on the comparison with Mitterrand, I think it's not, uh, it's not well taken. Uh, Mitterrand in, uh, 91, in 81, uh, as well as Chirac in uh, 95, they campaigned on a certain basis, and then they governed uh, after what wasn't yet called the Tsipras moment, but it was a sort of Tsipras moment that uh, Mitterrand went through in 83. And then Chirac, it came sort of six months after the election that he changed uh, course, or even three months after the election, and then they were punished for that. 
because the, the electorate thought they did not govern according to what they said. It's not the case of Macron at all. So it, he was, the thing is that because he was not coming, uh, I mean, he, he was not offering something that with a, with a clear political identity and the left-right axis, people didn't know where to place him. Uh, but he's delivering on what he said. Uh, anyway, so, so it's not the same sort of, uh, uh, of uh, grievances. They, they, it's, it's, it's about, you know, what type, what, what is he really? Uh, but he is delivering on, uh, on, on, the, on, on the program. I mean, the degree of correspondence between the program and what he's doing is very high. It's, very, it's extremely high by French standard. And it's even very high by general uh, standards. Is that why he gets on so well with Trump? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, less uh, sort of, um, you know, unpredictability, um, I would say. Uh, um, on, the, on the European election, I think that's an important, it's a very important question. Um, I mean, he has uh, a proposition, a political proposition that's valid at French level, but that may have some validity at European level, at least in some countries. Uh, and the question is, what kind of strategy will he adopt uh, with, with respect to the uh, European election? He can sort of choose to uh, consolidate uh, in the European Parliament election the gains he uh, had in the French uh, election and then form alliances, and, or, or he can sort of want to disrupt the, political, the European political landscape by uh, formulating a proposition that has wider appeal. Uh, you know, some of the sociology, some of the conditions are very specific to France, some are not. Uh, and uh, in some countries, uh, clearly, you have a process of the same sort going on. I mean, the, the, the Spanish, the transformation of the Spanish landscape uh, has some resemblance with uh, what's going on in France. It, it, it's, it's lower but it has some resemblance. What we've seen in Italy is different. And what you've seen in Italy is, is completely different because all the others, the two parties and the fringes, the two radical parties that uh, are forming a majority. The German political landscape is very stable in a way because they, uh, you know, they all this uh, angst about the AfD, but the AfD got 12% of the vote, uh, which is about half of what the extreme right got in, in France. Uh, so uh, the German landscape is, is stable. So, so you have at this, you have at the same time, you know, some currents that are identical, and some of the, those problems having to do with identity politics, with having to do with uh, uh, with the consequences of globalization, with having to do with the weakening of the proposition of the traditional party. They are the same, but there are also national conditions that are different. So I think at this stage it's uncertain. Let's take another round of questions. As I say, preference to women asking questions this time. Thank you. Natalie, I'm, I'm a teacher here. I'm French, as you can tell. I'm just interested in your interpretation of the L'Entente Cordiale and the relationship between France and Britain and the impact on Europe. Thank you. That's definitely one for you, Christine. Who are, any other women wanting to ask questions? <laughs> That's... You don't look like a woman to me. But. Okay, in that case, we have a German. 
Hello, good evening. My name is Sasha. I'm a student at the European Institute. Um, I would like to know the opinion of our speakers about the third dimension of uh, Macron's program, namely the European dimension. In which um, subject matter do you think that a Franco-German compromise is most likely to um, happen? Do you think that this could be on the fiscal side, as you already uh, mentioned, in form of a common budget, or rather on the side of the banking union by the completion with the third pillar? And there's one more question at the back. <coughs> President Macron has made a really huge splash on the international stage. He's with uh, Mr. Putin in Russia today. He was dancing with Trump in Washington a few weeks ago. He's traveling to India, to China, to Japan. He's appearing alongside <coughs> French troops in, in, in the um, sub-Saharan Africa. Really, uh, is France turned on by this? Is it a substitute, perhaps, for not being very popular at home? And can that really last? Christine, I think that's a question I would for you say as well. yes. I think the French are turned on by that. Uh, if only because uh, it's very hard for them to come to terms with the fact uh, that in a culture which has always had universalist ambitions, France is only a sort of medium power in the world today. And I think Macron gives them um, a representation of the French way, the, the French style uh, on the international scene, uh, which um, contributes uh, I think even for people, again, who are not at all uh, Macron enthusiasts, but I think they are quite proud of the image that Macron is giving of the country abroad. They, they, I think there's that general feeling, <coughs> at least until uh, too much physical intimacy with Donald Trump uh, actually damaged uh, that uh, notion. I think there's so pride that indeed France is back. And France is back represented by a young, good-looking, English-speaking president. And I think that goes down well uh, with the French. And l'entente cordiale? Uh, l'entente cordiale? Uh, <laughs> si ça existe. <laughs> of course, it exists. But... Um, uh, I think uh, Emmanuel Macron has been very uh, outspoken about uh, Brexit, very outspoken about uh, in Brussels and in um, the various <coughs> meetings with his colleagues that, uh, you know, the, the a la carte uh, notion that uh, some members of the British government, because I think the main problem in Paris, as in other um, capitals on, on, in the continent, is to try and understand uh, what actually uh, this government in Britain is want, wants to do with Brexit. <coughs> and so, and I think Macron is very much on the line that we, re we he regrets, we regret uh, Brexit. There is no reason to have any sort of leniency and go for the cherry-picking or whatever uh, expression uh, around, and that he's probably uh, 
quite inflexible on that. That being said, he's also very much aware that Britain is the only other nuclear uh, power in Europe, and that in for defense, for security, uh, intelligence, uh, of course, there has to be as close a cooperation uh, as can be. Jean, would you, would you pick up the question on which forms of economic governance are going to make yeah. progress? Um, one and the other two. First, I don't think the external dimension can be a substitute. Uh, I agree the French credit uh, President Macron with the, you know, what, he's doing in, you know, what he's doing on the international scene, but it's not at all in, it cannot be a substitute to the, to the domestic uh, you know, support. Um, Second, on the, on the Franco-British relationship, because there is a sentence, I, I like, you know, there are many sentences of George W. Bush I, I like. One particular is, I don't debate with myself. The problem here is that Mrs. May <laughs> is debating with herself, and that uh, limits what uh, can be done uh, with, uh, with other countries. Um, you know, we've lost track. I mean, the, 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 the rest of Europe, is losing track of the, the debate that is developing here, except, you know, Michel Barnier for sure. Uh, but the, the rest of Europe, maybe it's, uh, it's becoming very difficult to, to follow and to understand, and the degree of instability is, uh, is, is striking. Uh, on the, uh, on the, on the um, uh, Eurozone agenda, um, the Franco-German compromise is... Uh, it's, there is a, I would start, there is a tradition of having Franco-German compromises and uh, diplomats are very good at delivering it, which, uh, you know, takes a bit of what uh, the, the, the sort of pet projects of each side and, and, and builds a, a bridge. Now, that's not really what we, uh, what we need. I mean, the, the situation is that the Eurozone is still fragile, um, that um, the banking union uh, has not gone all the way towards recreating the sort of stability, I mean, fulfilling the agenda it was created for, so cutting the doom loop between banks and, and states, um, that um, the, uh, I mean, the ability, the, 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 sorry, the, the, the existence uh, <coughs> strength of instruments for policy making at the uh, Eurozone level uh, for stabilizing and, um, and at the same time also for creating you know, budgetary capacity. Um, that's uh, also part of the discussion, but it's, it's fairly controversial, as I said before. Um, so the question is, how far can we go into uh, accepting and understanding part of the, uh, what uh, matters for the Germans, for part matters for the French, and finding a compromise that is not a face-saving compromise, but that goes in both directions and addresses the fundamental problems that are uh, at the core of the German concerns and the French concerns. That's very hard to do. That's very hard to do uh, because um, there are, if you take banking union, for example, it's becoming a political taboo in Germany. Uh, for, well, yes. Yes. I mean, it was, no, I mean, I say becoming because I think that, you know, banking crisis, there, uh, 
the crisis that can hit any country. There, uh, it's Ken Rogoff who said, banking crises are equal opportunity threats. All countries, rich and poor, have gone through banking crises. So in principle, the fact to, to say, let's, uh, you know, let's mutualize that, let's, uh, let's uh, uh, ensure that it's dealt with at, at European level, let's have a common supervision, let's have a common resolution, let's address that, let's treat it as a common problem, being known that there are legacy issues to be dealt with, but that you, know, you, can, you can separate the legacy issue from the longer term issues of uh, um, uh, ensuring that you're, you're, you're coping with that without creating this fragility that link, that's, that's related to the link between banks and, and sovereigns. In principle, that's not something that you know, any country should be objecting to. Now, it has become a very political issue in Germany, because the, of, the, of the link between the German politicians and the, and, and the local banks and the Sparkassen and the very decentralized nature of the, the German banking system. Um, so I totally agree with the, with the German ones. They say, you know, let's, let's be clear about what are the legacy issues. Let's be clear about, you know, if there's something under the carpet. And if there is something under the carpet, let's deal with it now. Let's not you know, just uh, pass it on to the ECB and to the European system. They're perfectly right. But that's a different issue from the, the, the issue of saying you know, no to banking union because we want to keep the cozy system we have. Okay, let's take a, a last round of questions. Again, priority to women. Please over here. First. Hi, Benedict Pavieux, France 24. <coughs> Would you both say, Christian, uh, Professor, that overall, and although it's early days, that the election of President Macron is good news for France? And would you say that the weakness of all the other parties, except La République En Marche, is bad news for France? That's a very clear question. Any more coming up here? One down here, front. Given the panel um, view that the electorate, the French electorate, wasn't um, Tell us who you are, please. Uh, Dr. Keith Postler, formerly LSE. Um, given that the panel um, uh, thinks uh, that the French electorate wasn't clear about um, what Macron stood for, um, I'd like to know whether the director thinks that um, the campaign, um, how, how this affected um, his, his handling of the campaign, or was he aware of it, or did it make any difference in that um, Macron got elected and the polls were showing um, that that might um, happen? Okay. Any, any more? Uh, one person right in the middle. There's one here. Who's that? There. Uh -huh. One last one over here, please. I read that um, uh, President Macron Please tell us who you are. Robin Hanna, NAC graduate. Um, I, I read about a few weeks ago that uh, the president of France was talking about the need to create some kind of, well, I think something like that exists already, that some kind of political organization, French-speaking peoples, that parts of the world, like in the China and Algeria and Morocco and elsewhere, where they speak French to some kind of... Um, political organization like the British Commonwealth to, to link together these peoples. Could you say anything about that, please? Thank you. And the very last question here, 
número um. Um, hi there, uh, Michael Hassel, Absolute Strategy Research. Uh, my question is, uh, if a political crisis between Italy and the rest of the Eurozone emerges, what kind of stance will Macron take? Because you know, it strikes me personally he won't be um, content being as passive as some of his predecessors, but at the same time, you know, would he view this as an opportunity to, um, you know, given that Salvini and uh, De Maio uh, kind of represent um, you know, anti-German Eurozone? <clears throat> well, sure, I think you can continue that from yeah. the previous answer. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, you know, we are democratic societies uh, where people vote for whoever they want to vote for. And uh, I think the culture of saying those are parties, we, there are people we you know, we don't want to speak with and we would prefer to keep the parties we know and the interlocutors we know and um, that has to go, you know. The reality, uh, it's not the first upheaval there is um, in, a, in, a, in a country. I mean, we, are, we have, we had several of them. We continue to have several of them. I mean, they, and in this respect, the Macron's election is more an exception than a turning point because uh, we have seen, you know, I mean, there's sort of this new coalition being formed in Austria and uh, and uh, we've seen the, the Dutch election and we've seen outside the Eurozone also uh, mm -hmm. what has happened in, in Hungary. So, you know, the, uh, the degree of radicalism is part of the new landscape. Um, what it requires, I think, uh, is to, you know, to be First, to, to, have a, to have a dialogue, and to have a dialogue that starts as early as possible. I think it was relatively unwise to have two months after the uh, Italian election without any dialogue taking place, neither at Italian nor at European level. Uh, so, you know, when people are set to take charge, it's better to have a dialogue, and it's better to, you know, spell out what are the, what's the space of constraints in which, uh, which are essential uh, for the functioning of the eurozone and what the, what's outside this, uh, what's inside and what's uh, outside the space of constraint. Uh, so, I, at this stage, I don't know what will come out of this formation of the Italian government. I mean, the, these people are largely unknown. It's, it's a degree to which they are unknown is extraordinary, because so few uh, people spoke to them, and you know they did not go beyond this electoral slogan. Uh, we have to start with them a, a proper conversation about policy, not about electoral slogans. Uh, and uh, there are clearly choices, uh, you know, that uh, can be compatible with um, what uh, with the, the functioning of the eurozone. The, the choices that would be outside this remit. I think, you know, the focus on the fiscal focus on the case of Italy is both understandable because of the high debt level, but mistaken because the problem of Italy is not that Italy uh, hasn't had uh, a responsible fiscal policy, it's that Italy hasn't had growth. I computed what the French public debt would be if we had had the uh, fiscal policy of Italy, the primary surplus of Italy, since the beginning of the euro. The answer is, instead of uh, 97% level of French public debt at present would be 45. 
So that tells you something about uh, the, uh, the, the, the situation of Italy. The difference is that France had growth and Italy didn't have growth. Uh, so that a country of the sort delivers, uh, uh, you know, uh, radicalism, political radicalism is understandable. I mean, it's there in a, in a, it's a dead end. I mean, you know, to sort of you know, reform and to, or don't don't deliver growth, and therefore you know you can't escape. So we have to understand. At the same time, you have to tell them there are things you can do and then things you you can't do with the euro. Any comment on the question of the campaign? Uh, yeah, on the um, well, on the campaign, um, I think there were ambiguities in the campaign, like in every campaign. But on the whole, uh, it was uh, it was clear what uh, what Macron again uh, stood for, and I, I tried to summarize it. Uh, you know what uh, was his uh, proposition, and I think it was on the whole uh, understood, uh, received by by French people. So there, there's no misunderstanding in this in this respect. Uh, what I think uh, can be discussed is the, 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 the delivery on the various aspects. And I have said, I think on the modernization, there is a clear delivery. On the more ambitious transformation uh, empowerment agenda, there is a partial delivery. And the question is, you know, how uh, can uh, this be uh, completed? Uh, and uh, on Europe, um, well, it doesn't depend uh, exclusively on, on, on him. Um, but what I would take from uh, what, I, what I said is that the, the political capital Macron invested in Europe is, is very significant. And for this reason, he's going to continue uh, being uh, impatient. He's going to continue being demanding on Europe. And I think that the rest of Europe should wish him to continue <laughs> Uh, being on the demand side on, on Europe, because if we if we so were to, we to, to get rid, yeah, yeah, to get rid uh, of it, to abandon this agenda, this would not be good news. This would mean that you know uh, it would turn inside and it would stop stop being a force of of change and and reform and improvement for Europe. Uh, two quick answers: uh, Francophonie has been around forever. Uh, it's, uh, it might be a, of a surprise to you that even Saudi Arabia, for some absolute strange reason, is a member. And I think the last uh, world meeting of the Francophone, the French-speaking community, was actually held in uh, Riyadh, I think, last year. It's a, a Canadian uh, lady, Michel Jean, who is now the Secretary General. Before that, it was Abu Diouf. Uh, who used to be uh, president of uh, Senegal. So it's absolutely nothing new. Uh, it's not something that uh, Emmanuel Macron has uh, invented or created. Uh, but it's true that he appointed a very talented Moroccan-born uh, writer, uh, Leila Slimani, to be a sort of representative on the cultural scene. Uh, so I'd like to end up with Benedict's question, which I believe is a very good one. Of course, it's not good in any system that other political parties are so weak. Um, and of course, Macron will not do anything uh, to help them. And as we do have these European elections coming up uh, next year, traditionally, uh, in our uh, political life, it has always been uh, a terrible moment uh, for uh, traditional parties, uh, be they on the right or on the left. 
Right, thank you. There, there was an apocryphal question and answer, apparently, to Zhu Enlai, the former Chinese Prime Minister, who was asked, what, what do you think of the French Revolution? And his answer, allegedly, was, it's too soon to tell. <laughs> they thought he was asking about 1789, when, in fact, he was answering about 1968. <coughs> so, a one-word answer from both of you. Is it too soon to tell about the, the current French Revolution? I, I don't think that the word revolution is, is proper, and you always have to be extremely careful uh, using that in any French um, contest. Um, but uh, it's certainly a, a change, uh, not only in uh, the way to approach uh, the structural issues, uh, which no other uh, French politician had dared tackle in such a frontal way, and it is certainly, again, another four years to watch. So maybe we will be invited again next year. <laughs> very, very briefly, Jean. Yeah, very briefly. Uh, if you compare uh, what has been done to what uh, uh, was done in some of the political experiments that were called revolutions, and mostly conservative, actually, in uh, recent years uh, or recent decades, uh, I think... He has <coughs> delivered uh, above standard uh, compared to, you know, where we were in those of those uh, so-called revolutions. Well, I think that gives us a very positive note on which to end. So will you join me in thanking our two speakers?